from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't see their friends. And they're little kids. They want to explore. They want to play. They want to run around. One thing that really stayed with me was how small Miguel and Madison's world became. Rather than just thinking this is behind us, think about what can we do to lift up the people who were most affected, whose life trajectories will be changed if they don't regain some of the ground that was lost. I'm Emily Woodbury. As almost every parent and teacher is aware, the coronavirus pandemic radically disrupted learning. Being out of school for as many as two school years was especially hard on young kids. And interrupted learning doesn't just affect test scores. Research shows that time away from school can exacerbate inequalities of all kinds, including economic, gender, and nutritional inequalities. A new documentary, Education Interrupted, highlights the devastating disruption of schooling during these past few years by following one St. Louis area family. The film's executive producer and director joins us now. St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist Aisha Sultan, thank you so much for coming in today. Absolutely. I'm excited to share this documentary um, with this community here as part of the St. Louis International Film Festival this weekend. And this film follows 30-year-old Tyra Johnson from August 2020 to March 2022 as she takes care of her newborn, Nathan, homeschools her four-year-old daughter, Madison, all while overseeing online learning for her six-year-old, Miguel. Yes. Those are my arts over there, too. And those are my arts. That's my art, too. I did that when I was four. Do you like art? Yep. Is that what you want to do when you grow up? You want to be an artist? I'm already an artist because I made an owl. Why do you have to have home at school right now? I don't know. School is boring. But why do you think you haven't been able to go back? I Yeah, because the coronavirus is going around. What's coronavirus? Hmm. COVID-19, then if people get it, that means they will die. And kids be dying too from it. Aisha, Miguel is so cute in that clip. I love him talking about how he is an artist. He made an owl. But it's also really heartbreaking at the end where he talks about how he sees the pandemic. Yeah, and I think it was hard for young children. I mean, it was hard for all of us, but especially for very young children to wrap their mind around this massive upheaval in their daily routine and what was happening in the world. Like all of a sudden... I mean, if you think about it, if, you know, I'm in my 40s, so a two-year disruption in my life is a much smaller percentage of my life compared to someone who's six or five or four, because that's half their life that's um, that was disrupted. And I think initially there was so much fear and anxiety and unknown around it, and a lot of that transferred to kids in ways that we didn't even expect or know how to deal with. How did you come to work with Tyra and her kids? So during the pandemic, in the first year of it, in 2020, um, we had furloughs that we took from the Post-Dispatch, where I work full-time as a writer. And during that 
two-week furlough, a former editor from The Post, uh, Dick Weiss, who had um, a nonprofit called Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson, and which is now part of the River City Journalism Fund, reached out and said, hey, would you like to be part of this project that covers the impact of the pandemic in one of the most underserved zip codes in our region? And we're trying to find families who are willing to open their um, houses and their homes and their lives up to a group of reporters in a very intimate way and in a long-term way. And I said, absolutely, I'm interested. And so I was able to use the time and the furlough to connect with like a social service agency that connected me to several different families that I pre-interviewed, kind of like, you know, what journalists do. And then found Tyra, who, like you mentioned, was expecting, who had two young children and was also caring for a niece at the time. Um, and in a zip code 63106 that really struggles with high poverty rates, high crime, and she, she really wasn't sure how it was going to work with not having school for her kids. And um, we really connected. And we should mention she's a single mom. Mm-hmm. She's also trying to make money. <laughs> so she's right. like, I mean, I literally superwoman trying to do all of these things and make it work. Well, you know, and I think it was the extension and addition um, to unemployment insurance that really saved a lot of families, especially in the situation where you had a single earner in the house trying to support an entire family. And for her, I know that that was critically important, the the support that came at the state and federal level, uh, because she did lose her job because she didn't have childcare anymore, like so many people. I mean, how is she going to work? And she did, was not in a job, and she was making an hourly wage at the time. She was working for $10 an hour. So... Um, she did not have a way to replace that income for a long time. And this is a really intimate documentary. The The film opens on the first day of school in August 2020. And Tyra's set up a nice little learning corner for her kids. It has that classic rug with the roads on it, um, you know, charts on the wall, posters with the days of the week, stacks of books. It's a really nice space. But of course, you know, it's not school. And Miguel and Madison seem to struggle on that first day. I'm done. I'm done doing homework. Right. Ever. Forever. Stupid homework. Watch your head, okay? Just sit your head right here, okay? Miguel's right there, and he is, I don't know, is he asleep or what? Okay? But you just gotta rush your head, okay? Okay, I will let, look, I will let you take a 15 minute nap. So that's a scene I think a lot of parents can identify with. They've had those days, especially with the young kids who are really just grappling with, like you said, this disruption in their routine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I had older kids um, at school uh, who were supposed to be in school during the pandemic, high schoolers, and it was really hard for us. You know, it was hard for my daughter to lose her junior and part of her senior year. It was hard for my son to lose um, time in high school and to lose all of that social connection, activities, everything that's so meaningful, important to them. But they were older, so they could understand and they could sort of try their best to get through virtual education. But if you have a preschooler, a kindergartner, a first grader, and these are their prime literacy building years, and you don't, you're not a teacher. <laughs> it's very different trying to teach your kids how to read and run your household and take care of everything else. Um, 
it was a lot harder for Tyra than it was for me. And it felt extremely difficult for me. Yeah. And, you know, something else that Tyra mentions during the film. So in the start of the film, they eventually moved to East St. Louis, but Mm -hmm. they're living in St. Louis at the beginning. And she shares how she doesn't love the neighborhood they're in. Um, She was pointing to bullet holes um, in their apartment walls from a recent shooting. And I think that scene where she shows those holes in, in their apartment, it really highlights the kind of compounded trauma that so many kids were living with over the last few years. Right. I mean, especially kids who were in unsafe homes or, um, you know, unsafe neighborhoods. Like, all of a sudden, school, which was a safer place to be, was not available at all during the day. And so then you're stuck. I mean, one thing that really stayed with me was how small Miguel and Madison's world became for so long. Like their mom didn't feel safe letting them outside the house, outside of their apartment. And they couldn't go to school. They couldn't see their friends. So it was just like this tiny space that, and they're little kids. They want to explore. They want to play. They want to run around. Um, and their mom was scared about them, can anybody getting coronavirus and getting sick with COVID. So um, yeah, I know a lot of us, do not want to remember that time because it was traumatic in so many ways for so many people. If you lost someone you love, if you missed out on really important milestones in your life. And I understand this urge to try to just put it behind us, move past it, forget about it. Let's just look forward. Emily, I have that urge myself. But I feel like the lingering effects of that, especially on our most vulnerable parts of our population, like children, children from low-income neighborhoods, um, you know, children who already face a lot of challenges, like, we have a moral obligation not to just look away from what the impact of this two years of disruption was on them. We have a moral imperative responsibility to force ourselves to think about this and talk about it. And hopefully, my film does it in a way that's compassionate and fair and has moments of uplift and inspiration, as well as kind of rawness. I want to play one of those moments of uplift. There is a moment in the film where I was both smiling and tearing up. Mm -hmm. Tyra sets up a graduation ceremony for a handful of kids in pre-K and elementary school to celebrate them making it through the school year. So the first person up today we will have is Helena. Can we come up, please? I'm Elena, and I'm five, and I'm going to be in kindergarten, and I want to be a doctor. Good job, Elena. Now walk to your auntie. Walk to your auntie. The next person that we have up is Madison Henley. Yes. Can you tell me your name and age? Madison. How old are you? Five. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a police officer. Good job. And what what grade are you going to? I'm going to kindergarten. I want to be a police officer. Now walk to Miss Jaleesa. Yay! Give him a round of applause. Woo! The kids are so happy and proud in that scene. And I think it it really shows just how much Tyra cares. Amid all of the challenges she is Mm -hmm. dealing with, she, you know, wants to put together this ceremony to really make them feel like 
they did something amazing, which they did. <laughs> you know, she really put in the effort. They did. And, you know, Tyra is a very sympathetic and relatable um, mom. And even if your circumstances are extremely different than hers, socioeconomically, racially, um, what are like if your marriage, you know, family situation is different, you're still going to connect to that desire of a mother to want the very best for their child and to preserve and try to give them whatever opportunities she can. That is a universal kind of feeling that we can all connect to. But I think even more than that, anybody who watches this film is going to be moved and changed by the children in the film. I think especially, too, we've been talking about Mikhail and we heard him and Madison. But Nathan, the baby, we get to oh, see Mason. him. His name is Mason. Sorry. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Mason. He, we see him as a newborn mm-hmm. and then as a two-year-old by the end or nearly a two-year-old. Exactly. And it's just so cute to see him grow up. And he just loves his siblings so much. He loves his siblings and they adore him. And he actually loves the camera. And I have a behind the scenes photo which I can uh, send you after like I was doing this final interview in a studio with Tyra we didn't do too many but he got very attached to me because I would show up periodically and you know usually have something fun for the kids while I was filming or whatever and um, I'm holding him while I'm doing this interview and directing her and this scene of and I because he wanted to be with his mom but I needed to be able to interview her on camera so he's like got his head on my shoulder and his little you know body against mine and I just thought oh I remember when my babies were this little and I remember trying to multitask and do millions of things when my kids were this young. Now, the film ends with Miguel and Madison getting tested to see, um, you know, how they're doing after a few years out of school. In our final minute here, what can you tell us about the takeaway you want people to understand about what happens when education is interrupted? I want people to see, even with a parent who tried their level best, there is a lasting and significant impact. And you, you will find out in the film what that lasting impact is for Miguel right now. And Miguel is one of millions of children in this situation. And so I want people moving forward to think about rather, I mean, rather than just thinking this is behind us, think about what can we do to lift up and bring back up the people who were most affected, whose life trajectories will be changed if they don't regain some of the ground that was lost. Aisha, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Today's episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dore. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.